Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to This Week in Mormons. We're so thankful you took the time to join us this week. I'm Jeff Openshaw. And I'm Soraya Wilson. Yes, she's back everybody. Soraya, it's been a little while since we've had you on. I, I think we've missed you. I'm sorry it's been so long. How you been? I've been good. I'm really excited to be back. I love I love being on this show. It's a lot of fun. I'm trying to think when we when did we actually last have you on? Was it was has it been like a full year since we it's did been the like seat, a year the yeah. seat filler and that's kind of when we yeah. last chatted? Oh geez, I'm sorry, that's on me. It's I I assume you've at least published one or two more books in that time. I have, yeah, I had one come out and yeah, I think I got one, yeah. And what's in the works right now? You got another one that's coming out soon, or one that you're working, you're Not writing? Coming out soon. I just finished up one. I'm in the editing phases. It's called Chemistry of Love. I'm really excited about this one. It's just is it about ha- is it about chemists? It is. It's about a cosmetic chemist, and they're makeup scientists essentially. I love and this. And <laughs> I was very excited about it, and I'm like, what a cool job! And I went looking. I'm like, I need to learn more about this, right? And got the internet for it. It was just real basic. And so I'm like, all right, what if BYU has a program and I can go talk to someone? And I looked in like BYU Cosmetic Chemist and it led me to a woman named Chrissy Gerard, who just is a BYU alum who has her own cosmetic chemistry business um, run out of her home. And I contact her. I'm like, people must think I'm so weird. I'm like, I'm an author. Would you mind talking to me? And she's like, I would love to. So it was fascinating. And the story she had to tell, several of the stories made their way into the book because it's so funny. Huh. Um she was just so intelligent, but it was really difficult. Like, okay, how do I take that information and distill it and make it believable, but yet entertaining to the average reader, you know? So it was, it was a big challenge. Um, so in this one, the cosmetic chemist is in love with her boss and her company is a non-fraternization rule. So in a, a oh, grand man, gesture, she, uh, she quits her job and goes to the company party that night to, to tell him of her love and he announces his engagement. <gasps> and she's heartbroken and goes into the bathroom to be sad. And this man comes in because she's in the men's bathroom and starts talking to her. Come to find out this is the hero. He wants to break this engagement up and enlists her, her to help him. So that's that's the story. And uh, He wants to break the engagement up because he's in yes. love with the, f- the female fiance? No, because what? with the fiance, he's worried that she's after his business. And so he's got some monetary motivation there to want to protect that. And um, yeah. No, no, I don't want any, any, no spoilers, of course. Am I to assume though, this scheming individual is also successful and hunky and worthy worthy of love perhaps? He is. Interesting. You'd be surprised on how that works. Yeah. I mean, someone did a spoiler from, I've got a book coming out in a couple months. Actually, I forgot about that one. I got a book coming out in a couple of months. Um, and in that one, someone did a passage of like, I hope it's not a spoiler. I have like a private reader group and she posts that. And it was just about the hero being cute. I'm like, oh no, spoiler, the hero's hot. You know, and it made everybody laugh. But, you know, yeah, that's an okay spoiler to share. That's actually a pretty good, um, I know you love Hallmark stuff. That's a, that, that would be a good plot for a Hallmark film, honestly. I mean, I, I think that'd be a nice turn of, I don't think I've ever seen a Hallmark film where the plot is someone's in love with someone else and they get engaged in the beginning and it's heartbreak. I don't know if I've seen one like that. It's always, they, you know, the woman, the businesswoman in the big city finding true love, you know, with her lumberjack well, flame from high school or something yeah. like that. But I was too racy for Hallmark. I remember you mentioned that when we first so, had you on, right? Which I'm cracks like, me. Well, my editor, when I tell her that kind of stuff, you actually mentioned, you're like, wow, the seat is a lot racier in the last one. And I told my editor that and she literally laughed for like two minutes straight. She well, knows I he read... needs to read some of the books that I edit because I am so far 
on the spectrum of steaminess, you know, that I'm, I'm very minimal, you know, well, I and, I know, and, you anything, have, but, and you have your very, you have your specific standards. Like you talked about yeah, the first time you were on the show, you, have lines, lines, you, won't, yeah. you won't cross. I'm not saying the seat filler was steamy. I'm saying it was steamier than the other yeah. one. So but that's yeah, she, also, my editor thought that was cute because she's like, oh, he, I need to send him some books. I'm like, no, you don't. He doesn't want to read them. <laughs> <laughs> my wife is going to get very concerned yes. with the growing pile. <laughs> all, all my uh, my Suzanne Steele novels will be piling up next to my nightstand. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, we'll keep an eye out for that. I'm excited for that book. It's and uh, well, good times, man. Good times. Uh, everything else great out there in in good old Utah. Uh, your temple's probably getting close to done at this point, right? In Saratoga it's Springs. It's getting close. Yeah, they keep talking about it. It looks fantastic. It's just this massive like monolith. It's up the street from my kids' uh, junior high school that they go to. And, you know, so I see it all the time and you can't not see it. It's just built. I mean, it's built high up. It's just there when you're driving around. It's, it, you can't miss it. Yeah. So, I mean, and the houses they're putting in next to it are ridiculous. Like, oh my gosh, because there's a street you- leading up to the temple. Those houses, I mean, million dollar homes, not even a question. Well, you but know. nowadays in Utah, that could very well mean just a simple three bedroom bungalow somewhere. Right. right? I mean, it could be like <laughs> two, three million at this point, you know, but I mean, they're very, very very nice homes that are going up on that street up to the temple. And I'm sure there's probably some kind of architectural standard for what's being allowed, but yeah. And they're not even, I mean, they have a good view of the temple, but you know, in my house, I see the lake in the mountains. I have a gorgeous mm. view and they don't see that from where they are. So I'm like, that's a lot well, of money to not get the view, which is the whole point of Saratoga Springs. I mean, but I want to remind you, Soraya, that the devil controls the waters. So, I mean, that is as true. we learn as, as missionaries. So I don't yeah. know if that is the better view or not. You got to really think about that. How, now, so you see this a lot somewhere like Utah. Temples go up all around the world, but I really feel like, especially in Utah, the church will build large temples and often there are higher end housing developments around it. And I don't just mean like a like a cool mixed use type thing, like maybe what they were trying to do in the Tuella Temple before they canceled all that and moved it elsewhere. Um, like Draper comes to mind, you know, it's built kind of in a very, a very tony neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, and obviously we, we like the temples to be in nice areas, but like, how do you feel about that from just a, I don't know, a community, a development standpoint that you have these very large temples and then they surround them on purpose with very upscale homes? I find it interesting, which is why I probably mentioned it in the first place. Because, that's why, you know, I'm, that's I, why I'm asking you. Saratoga Springs can be nice. It kind of runs the gamut, you know, um, closer to the lake the houses are a lot nicer and very much mansions. And I, and I know that because when we moved out here, it was during the recession, they had these homes that were so expensive that, you know, they had knocked them down so much we could afford them. So I got to go look at a lot of mansions, you know, before we bought our home. So there's a lot, there are, there are those upscale homes. Um, So it's not out of place. It's not like, wow, everything else is not as nice as this. And this is suddenly really nice. It does exist, but there are regular, more three-bedroom, two-bathroom tract homes as well, right? So we kind of have a, a big variation, I feel like. And you know, like my neighborhood, I think, is probably a little bit nicer. Um, but this one, like jaw kind of dropping as you drive past, you know, the yeah. houses are that kind of magnificent. And they have the whole center divider. Like in my neighborhood, the center dividers are full of rocks, you know, and <laughs> desert plants. Um, and this one, it's just all greenery and flowers and trees. And I'm like, this is so interesting. Like you expect that at the temple, but just the street leading up to it is is that way as well, which I find interesting. So, well, and, and I hear, I've read before, I don't know if this is always the case, but that the church often partners with developers. So the developers will run the utilities for the temple, essentially free of charge when they do yeah. these kinds of projects, uh, which is interesting to me. But I also wonder how much sway they have in terms of responsible 
community development, that kind of thing. Because like you said, like you might have foliage and shrubbery that is fitting of the climate that you're in, as opposed to, you know, it's like people, like people, a lot of people in Arizona have some similar gravel and plants and that are appropriate for the area, not just overwatering and overusing in the desert. Yeah. And I, I, it's an interesting concept because I know that there's got to be some level of that because the church owns so much land out here. Yeah. You know, that they that they sell to developers, like this is ours for a church and this is ours for, you know, saving the, the things for themselves so they can build churches in the future. And, you know, we're in an area like my brother's up in Salt Lake and, you know, we go to his ward for like a baby blessing and they can barely fill the chapel, you know, and it's a bunch of mostly older people. There's not very many families, um, but you're out here and it's like all the way to the stage every time, just in our little ward, there's 300 primary kids. Wow, and that, and that was after what? we split. After we split, that was the number. So you know, out in this area, out more in Utah County, you are getting the really big families, and uh, the churches are needed. You know that we are actually in a building that we're not supposed to be in anymore. They actually shifted our entire stake, and we are going now to another stake's building because there is no room for us in the wow. building that should be our stake. So yeah, and that is one of those things. Like a lot of times on this show, I've I've lovingly mocked we'll say the fact that like we'll build we announce so many new temples all the time and like every temple announced in utah is at least seventy thousand square feet they're all big the only not huge one is the one going up in ephraim but that was kind of like that compromised temple so they didn't you know gut the manti temple um but then you forget like in many ways it is actually warranted like you're like you have very big wards bur- bursting at the seams you can't even yep. fit in all your meeting houses and so yep. it, there are members uh, to serve in this case. We've been trying for years just to my stake to get another uh, meeting house built. I've I've heard this from many people, at least in North America, that the church typically, and once again, I don't know if Utah functions differently because Utah kind of does things differently sometimes. But if your state, your stake has to have at least four units meeting in every building for then the facilities management people to say, and you know the, the church architect to be like, okay, we're going to give you another another meeting house in your stake. Uh, we've been trying to do that in my stake for years because we're packed to the gills in terms of the number of units we have. But at the same time, I don't have 300 kids in primary. Yep. <laughs> not at all. And DC has got good numbers of members, but it is not like that by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, it, it, My ward has split. We've li- lived here for 10, almost 11 years. My ward has split every year since we moved here. That is bonkers. Yep. I missed the window. I missed the window to move there, Soraya. You did. Now it's it. too late. Now I'm going to get stuck moving to ugh, Eagle Mountain. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Eagle Mountain is nice. Is it though? Is it really? Or, or heaven forbid, Harriman. I mean, people. Oh. I, I've driven through Harriman. There's nice places in Harriman. <laughs> I've driven through, so. I went through there once. It, yes. Cop, eventually someday, Copperton is going to come back from its original days as a mining town and become something huge. I don't know. Utah's fun times. I'm looking at this map here of Sarah, since we've been talking. Yes, the homes there, uh, they're building new construction that starts at $940,000. Yeah. Starts. So. Yeah. And what is this? The Keevan, have you ever been to the Keevan Roos Bakery? What is going on here? What is this all about? I think that's at somebody's house. It you looks like it is somebody's businesses. house. Yeah. Keevan Roos, for people who don't know, this is just Ukraine stuff again. That's the ancient Slavic kingdom that predated modern day Ukraine and Russia and Belarus and all that. But it was, it was based out of what is today present day Kiev. So that's, it's on Google maps and it jumped out at me and I'm curious what they're doing. Uh, anyway, well, this was a fun trip down Utah. Lots of fun stuff happening 
in the world of Latter-day Saint news, uh, since we were talking about temples, I might as well uh, talk a little bit about some of the DC temple updates, which are going to happen all the time for everyone, and all the way until August, folks. I'm sorry. This is what's happening now for a very long time. And the church is not shy about about covering it at all um, because it's the DC temple. So I, I do love the headlines of Deseret News lately. They've gotten in kind of a, a slightly clickbaity uh, cadence. This yeah. one's not as bad, but there's some that are a lot worse. But this one says, why a former senator is giving tours of the Washington, D.C. temple. As if there's like intrigue in that statement. Well, I don't know. Why is a former U.S. senator daring to give tours of the Washington, D.C. temple? What does that even mean? Um, they're talking about Elder Gordon Smith. Elder Gordon Smith used to be a senator in the U.S. Senate from Oregon. Uh, kind of known as a moderate Republican, I'd say, for most of his career. He currently lives somewhere in Northern Virginia. I think he lives in like Vienna area or around there. But he's in Area 70 as well right now. So I know this because he presided over our state conference last year or two years ago when we were all on Zoom. And it was very exciting. Very interesting guy, though. We had some cool stuff to say. So that's one thing. He's in Area 70, so he probably does this. But this article is actually kind of cool because it goes well beyond this. And you realize the story of his father, who was the... Uh, the president of the Washington DC stake at the time and was one of the key figures in trying to uh, get a temple on the East coast. There was no temple East of the Rocky mountains at that point. There was no temple, I think even East of Utah at that point, or, you know, it just East of the Rockies. Right. Um, Cause you had it, you had what Mesa and then the temples in Utah. And that was, there was no Denver. There was no anything else at that point. And so um, it actually goes a little bit more into kind of the cool story which they've shared a little bit before on Deseret News, uh, some of the, the miracles that transpired in order to build a temple in Washington, D.C. You hear crazy stories like how his dad deliberately wanted to kind of obfuscate who was trying to buy the land in the area because they thought if they knew it was a church, they'd change the price, but it actually turned out to be a really positive thing. So we bought it from, from a Jewish organization and everybody was all on board with one another. Very cool stuff. So it's meaningful to him. Uh, Gordon Smith, because his father was a stake president. His father helped build the temple. It says he even went to the land um, that would be on the, the temple property and prayed there about going on a mission when he was younger. And so it's really uh, a much more inspiring story, I think, even than what the headline might suggest uh, to learn about how very real it is to him uh, to be able to take part in this open house today. He remembers when the temple was built as a young man, of course. And now the temple's doors are open, you know, for the first time in almost 50 years uh, to the general public. So that was a cool story. I just enjoyed reading it. You should read it too. Yeah. I should. That sounds really cool. <laughs> I should. <laughs> I haven't read it. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Another quick update here because uh, we got, an, you know, more temple stuff. I might, maybe I'll pepper these in so it gets interesting. How the Washington, D.C. Temple Open House is creating neighbors and friends. Uh, this is already a little bit older here. It's from the first week of the open house concluding. The big the big header image they use here, of course, is um, none other than Wolf Blitzer, people. Wolf Blitzer from CNN toured the temple. And if you've ever watched CNN, you know that everything Wolf Blitzer says is breaking news. So I'm hoping he went to the temple and said, breaking news, I'm here at the temple right now. Right now. Let's go to our panel. But yeah, they've okay. had a lot of VIPs for the first two weeks, so... Uh, that's really the gist of it. This is an article that just talks about all the nice people they've met. Editors, like the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, great magazine, people should read it, good times. All kinds of interesting people, uh, leaders from the NAACP, uh, uh, more on the lazy, I'm looking at some of these here. 
looking at some of the pictures, a lot of people from the Atlantic. Um, a former uh, Congressman Paul Ryan went there. Some great poll quotes from Paul Ryan, who talked about how inspiring it was to go in the temple. He was the former Speaker of the House. The church loves this kind of stuff. And I, I haven't seen pictures yet. I don't know if they'll be published, but since I live out here, um, people who have been volunteering there over the past few weeks were telling me like, oh yeah, Mitt Romney was there the other day, and that, which is not surprising. Yeah. But the, the main commentary was that Mitt Romney's uh, senatorial entourage, like his staffers, he, they said it was far larger than any other groups that have come through from politicos and uh, people of interest in DC, which I think is mostly not surprising just because... Um, I assume a lot of his staff are members of the church. That's often yeah. what happens, and especially for someone like of, of Mitt Romney's prominence. So apparently, he he brought quite the uh, posse with him uh, to attend the temple. So good times at the temple, folks. Good times in D.C. I am not going for another well, week and a half, I think. But we're just going to be with like you know the plebeians, regular old folk, right? With, um, with the politicians coming, do you think it's? I mean, obviously, politicians. Everything is, you know self-aggrandizement i guess trying to you know appeal to those voters i'm wondering what's the connect i mean obviously it's in washington dc but what's the what's the thing that makes them come i think it's more the church reaching out to them i don't think it's a huge get for the politicians really um i don't get for the church because it's prominent people at one of a prominent building that's you know we like, who are we as, as a church? We care a lot about being accepted by the by the overall society. And of course, it's a big deal. If you can get really important people to come and tour the temple, it's a good photo op. It's just, yeah, you know, it's cool that you see some church leaders shaking hands with Paul Ryan. That looks really cool. What is interesting to me, though, is the different people they've had greeting others. Like in the very beginning of this, you had some of the apostles there to kick it off. And some have come in and out. But you would almost think for some of the the major politicos who'd be coming through, like they'd be like, "All right, all right, Mitt Romney's here. Get Elder Christopherson over there, yeah. you know, like like don't 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 just send over the Area seventy. And for all I know, they might have done that. There might be more to report on after the the past week. But I don't know if there's a huge gain for them because I I doubt most of these uh, politicos, whether they're currently in office or former, are sent tweeting much about it. I think it's just our quest for legitimacy and prominence in the American cultural experience, right? I think that's what yeah. it's all about. It's just fine. So good times. I don't know if I have any more about the DC temple. Maybe, who knows? Maybe it'll come up. But I'm good now, Soraya. I can take a break okay. and you can talk about things that you care about. I can take a break. Oh, so everyone needs to be paying attention to this if they haven't already. My mom and I have talked about this like extensively. But the, the FX miniseries, Under the Banner of Heaven, which... I only got interested in because uh, I love Andrew Garfield. You know, he's playing the main character in that. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, they're like, it's about the church. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, because you don't realize that's what it's about. Um, and not being, I guess, of a certain age, I didn't know this story. I didn't know what it was about and went and uh, like for a day just was reading about it and telling my husband, he's like, I don't want to hear any more about the murder. You know, like, <laughs> I, I like murder stuff, but uh, don't like, I, that sounds really bad. I don't like murder stuff. I just, I find it fascinating because fundamentalism extremism fascinates me because yeah. i can see how easy it is to have that happen um and we think we're immune we think you know that's why i get on here and i get really mad about the book of mormon in ohio that's some extremism that's some fundamentalism that's happening in that movement and it scares me and i can see it happening so yeah obviously this is this is different but the fact that they're choosing not only to tell the story which fine but i guess it's really focused on 
Joseph Smith and early church history. And I find it so fascinating because I was I'm reading what the you know the, the book writer, what was his name, Krakauer, um, and then Dustin Lance Black, who's the screenwriter, who was raised LDS um, since left the church. And they keep using these phrases and saying these things in all the articles I'm reading. And it was like one of them was just put it on a shelf. If you're having doubts about the church, you put it on a shelf. And I thought, never in my life have I heard that phrase. I, mean, I called my mom. I'm like, have you ever heard this phrase? She's like, you know, I'm in my 60s. I've lived in multiple states. I have never heard anybody. Have you heard anybody in the church ever use that phrase? I mean, I've heard it, it like in my, in my life, but it's funny. You're not, the first person to, you're not the first person to mention this verbiage, yeah. too, well, how because, it seems kind of anachronistic well, keep, in a way. They keep repeating it. That yeah. keeps being this thing, and this is what they believe. You know, and he's saying, uh, Dustin Lance Black said, the church didn't acknowledge that Joseph Smith was polygamous until 2013. I'm like, well, that's some bull crap because I was at BYU, took a class specifically on Joseph Smith, and we talked about it extensively. So, no, that's not some new thing the church was owning. I, I thought that, I don't know. It's very hard for me when people get things so wrong. I thought, I have no desire to watch this. I, I mean, there are scenes that are shot meant to be temple ceremonies and, um, yeah. I thought and we would be really outraged with another faith if if their sacred things were being, you know, I don't know. I, I just find it very hard that, you know, not that it's secret, but it's just that you're taking things that are so special to us and you're mocking them and turning them into entertainment. I, I mean, I have no, I am not watching this show. I, I, I do not have any plans to do so. I, uh, I'm debating it. Um, I'm debating it. We'll see. I mean, I mean the uh, the Krakauer book is is quite famous. It came out in two thousand three, right? And it came kind of on the heels of a very lengthy period where we had done a lot of PR as a church. Where President Hinkle, this is this is all in the wake of President Hinkle, you know, doing sixty minute interviews, all this stuff that we were loving around the late nineties, early two thousands, when President Hinkle was working very hard to bring us more mainstream. Then Krakauer comes out with this book, and uh, you know, for better or worse, it was a bestseller. It put the church under a different kind of microscope, and the church was so concerned about it that it issued press releases um, to question the the veracity and, and about some of his claims, and to basically like say like, no, 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 this isn't you know fact checking a lot of what he wrote. Normally, the church would ignore things like that, but they went yeah. out of their way to. It's not like the church did the same thing for the Book of Mormon musical. We we smartly instead. Put out, took out ads in the playbill, but we weren't issuing <laughs> retractions or anything or just saying like, oh, well, let's correct the record a little bit here, people, about what's what. We kind of just stay out of it, but we were, we got actively involved during the crack hour era. So I'm curious about this, um, how it'll be. Like, I don't know. I'm torn on whether I want to watch it or not. I was talking to an associate who said I owed it to our listeners to watch it. Um, uh, yeah, the whole uh, put a pin in it thing. It, it, it's... It's curious to me. I don't, I'm not big on like, yeah, making a mockery of our temple ordinances or anything like that either. I do try to take a step back from that and think about how much other media I've consumed in my life that might have gone for some kind of juxtaposition of like showing some sort of, I can't think of anything specifically, but might show some sort of, oh, here, The Godfather is a beautiful example. That comes to mind. You have the baptism scene in The Godfather. I think that's part two, right? when they're baptizing his child and then it keeps cutting to footage of having other people murdered at the same time under his order. And the whole point is to talk about the hypocrisy of the main character, what he's doing. He's in this holy place. while at the same time he's ordered to hit on a bunch of his adversaries. Um, 
I think it's they're kind of, they're kind of going for a lot of that same stuff in, in Under the Banner of Heaven or in many other things. I don't find it offensive to watch the, a depiction of Catholicism in such a way, and I don't know how my Catholic friends felt about that. You know, I think it's a little bit different for us just because we're a comparatively newer faith, despite our belief that it is the restored church, but that our modern history only dates back to 1820, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to being deep in the lore of the you know the pre-medieval era, even you know. So you know. Um, I mean, I, anyway, I that's would... kind of my way of saying it. I'm not quite sure where I'm going to stand on it. Um, one thing that cracks me up is the poster for it shows a meeting house. And even that meeting house, I'm like, I don't think that design showed up until like 2004 yeah. for a meeting house. But okay. Well, and how insistent the filmmakers are that they're 100% right, that they did the work. You know, Dustin Lance Black is out there saying, I put my shoulder to the wheel. I've done the work. And I'm like, even if you talk to five people, you know, like, that's not the Mormon church, right? Like that's yeah. just not, that's not the whole thing. And it's just, it's, it's very odd to me. And I'm, and, I'm realizing how much, like, I mean, I ended up yelling at somebody in gospel doctrine yesterday. Really? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Tell us more. Tell us more. <laughs> no, I, I should be more patient and kind, but we were talking about Moses, right? And it's something that I've studied pretty intently. Moses fascinates me as a leader and a person. And so I, I've read a lot about him. And we were talking about some kind of speculation. How long was he on, you know, Mount Sinai? And of course, we don't know because the Hebrew answer in the Bible is 40 days and 40 nights. So having studied Hebrew as well, and I'm by no means an expert, but having studied it, you know, and learning about it, for one thing, the Hebrew language is so symbolic and so beautiful and everything is multiple levels. They don't have like straightforward speech like we do, right? Like it, it's all meant to mean something else. So when they say 40 days and 40 nights, it is something that shows up 24 times in the Bible. Mm-hmm. It means a long time. It's like us saying that took forever. It didn't actually take forever. We're just indicating to our reader that it was a long time. Remember 40 in Hebrew is sacred. It means perfection after trials and tribulations. It means something has been completed and perfected. So when they're using that number 40, they don't actually mean 40. I mean, you can take the story of Noah's Ark and it's 40 days and 40 nights, right? In the same chapter, it tells you, well, actually it was 11 months, you know? Yeah. The 40 days and 40 nights is something that when it uses it with Jesus Christ, um, it was meant as a, it was, it was Matthew trying to show his, his Jewish readers that he was the Messiah by using, you know, Hebrew phrasing that they would have recognized and would have had meaning to them. It was deliberate. You know, it wasn't actually 40 days. It was to say something to a Jewish audience. So I'm sharing this in class, and this guy, I, we, do you have one of the people in your ward who every Sunday talks like five or six times, just keeps raising his hand, and just sometimes the most inane stuff, talking to hear themselves talk, which just drives me crazy in the first place. But, you know, he's saying it was literally 40 days. I'm like, it was not, you know, and he goes, you don't know that. I'm like, I do, actually, and here's why I know that, and I've studied this. He's like, well, I've read the Old Testament twice. And I know it means literally. I'm like, it doesn't. And he goes, well, that's your opinion or whatever. I'm like, it's a fact. He goes, it's literal. I'm like, it's a metaphor. And then my husband put his hand on my leg and I stopped. (laughs) But I'm usually much more tolerant. But it's one of those things, it's just thing after thing after thing after thing that was all incorrect. I'm like, this is why God has not called me to be the gospel doctrine teacher right now, because I have very little patience for this. I, you know, there's so many good perspectives that are offered. And I love hearing what other people think. But when it's something like that, where I know what I'm talking about, because I've studied it and, you know, people stay in church, well, I'm not a scholar. Well, 
not to toot my own horn, but when it comes to ancient scripture, I kind of am a scholar. You know, I spent a lot of time studying it. So not that I couldn't be wrong. I will fully admit that I could be wrong about that. But that is such a basic concept when it comes to Bible reading that I'm like, how can you be arguing this with me? I, Google it. There are going to be 40 entries about 40 days and 40 nights, you know. So, yeah, I yelled. I didn't mean to. It That's happened fast. now. Let me turn it on. This is a bit of a digression, but let me turn it on its head a little bit. What do you say in more of a, uh, maybe a church history context? What about people who study, especially history of the church and become, feel like disaffected from the church? And this is not the only reason people leave the church. Yeah. I, I but what about those who say that, say, I've studied it out. I've taken the time to study this out. And now because of this, I take major issue with where I am with the church. Which, if I'm here at all, what do you say to them? I find it very fascinating because I'm like, how do you and I study the same thing and come to completely different conclusions? I, I've never felt like things are being hidden from me or I've never discovered something that I'm like, oh, the church didn't tell me that. And I, I guess for me, maybe it's just a matter of perspective and people, again, maybe it's because you never learned it in the first place. And so when you do find out it's this shocking thing, I'm like, yeah, Joseph Smith married a bunch of women. And I, my husband's Two of his family members are not members of the church. Not only are they not members, but they're very kind of anti and attacking uh, every chance they get. And they were talking about Joseph Smith and his wife specifically. And, you know, that there were women who were marrying themselves to him after he died. Um, and I said, we forget that the saints were in their infancy, right? I mean, this was the prototype of the church that they were starting. And I said, they didn't understand how stuff worked. Like they used to baptize each other every week, you know, until the Lord had to come and say, don't do that. <laughs> Baptism is once, you know, but they were yeah. literally baptizing themselves every week, you know, get rid of your sins. I'm like, that's great. We should go back to that. But um, <laughs> they were awesome. so like in their infancy. And I think with trying to understand plural marriage and, you know, how would this work? And I'm like, yeah, if I'm a woman hanging out in Joseph Smith's time, I can't be a bad thing to be married to Joseph Smith. Like, calling an election made sure right there, right? I don't know. I, I think because I understand, and this may be what they talk about with the difference between Catholics and Mormons, where, you know, the Catholics say their their Pope is infallible and no one believes it. And we say the prophet is fallible and no one believes it. You know, that there's just this, I, I, I again, from I think from being a writer, that the people in the scriptures are very real people to me. They are not characters. They are not flat figures. They're not perfect beings. Like, I think Nephi is kind of whiny, you know, to be honest. Um, I, I just, I see them as these real people and they have their traits and their flaws. And they tell you, like Nephi will tell you over and over again, I have messed up dramatically bad. Like it's, I have really sinned. And we don't believe that, right? Like Nephi is just perfect and you need to be just like him. And so I look at Joseph and I think such a flawed, but amazing man and doing the best that he could with what he had. And I, I honestly don't get it. I don't know what it is about church history that makes people freak out. I'm like, these are a bunch of people who are kind of wandering around in the dark, trying to figure it out and getting line upon line, precept on precept, you know, that one thing at a time. And as they learned a new thing, they would adjust and move on. Right. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know that people actually study things. I mean, it's like, with COVID, the people who are experts because they follow someone on Twitter who says COVID is bad, you know, I've studied it out. No, you haven't. You listen to Crowder or Ben Shapiro and you think that's studying. So I think it depends on where you're getting your information. 
because so many antis present the history that it, they color it. You know, it's half truths and lies. And it's colored in a way that makes it look so terrible and bad, but that's not actually what happened. And they think that's the truth. And they've studied it and they're scholars. And I, I have a, a writing friend who's her and her family left the church, you know, very active LDS family, large extended LDS family. And she said it was church history related and she won't discuss it. Um, but, you know, I want to ask her why. What what exactly did you learn that you didn't know before? Like, what what is there to not know? I, I don't know if it's being a history major and going to BYU. I literally typed up, um, I transcribed the journals of pioneer companies, including Brigham Young's Pioneer Company. And that was my job was to transcribe it from, there were big, thick typewritten manuals. And I would transcribe them because, you know, saving them on computers, those newfangled computers. That was my job. So I was surrounded by the professors in that department were all church history experts and would talk about it and had the most amazing books about it. So I don't know. I feel like I really learned about it, you know, in the day and age before the internet. And so it's never affected me that way. And I'm not sure why it does for other people, but this is why you have to study, you know, that I, I feel like we have such a, and I probably talk about it a lot in church that everybody's like, well, I'm just not a scholar. I'm like, well, that's stupid. Cause you should be, you know, you have more information available to you than almost anybody else in the history of the world. And you could learn so many things from so many amazing, brilliant minds and you choose not to, you know, I, you could play a, you know, two less levels of candy crush and study some Brent Gardner has written an excellent series with book of Mormon. I would highly recommend it. Um, are people yeah. still playing Candy Crush? Is that still a thing? I play or, Candy Crush. Or is this or is this kind of outdated? Is this like an Angry Birds reference? Yeah. I don't know. Someone actually made an Angry Birds reference in church yesterday about how she was spending too much time doing it. And so she got family history instead. But And you yeah. rolled your eyes like, okay. Angry Birds. Okay, no. you're a little behind the times there. You do raise some good, some good points. I mean, I I think I didn't, maybe didn't learn a lot of things as early as you did in your personal uh, gospel career, right? But uh, you got to have like, you got to take things with, a grain of salt. You've got to like look for the nuance. And that's what I, yep. that's what I've tried to do and give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, like you, I forgot what we were talking about before when, you know, someone said, um, you know, the church did not acknowledge Joseph Smith was a polygamist until 2013, which that is not true. I would say the church has tried to be more forthright about a lot of those things since around 2013, when the gospel topics essay started showing up. I think there was, I think there was a lot of parts of our history that we have found difficult to find a way to discuss or address in a mainstream context. And so we've just kind of tried not to say it didn't happen, but just not to highlight it, right? In our in our quest for acceptance for, from America, especially in a big part of it. Um, and I, I do think in that that part of it, you know, could be could have been to our detriment. I think there's a lot for my generation in particular who have left because they were raised with this one thing and with what the Sunday school curriculum was and kind of just doing it strictly along those lines, like a lot of, of people in the church. And then with the advent of the internet, I think we've been playing a little bit of catch up as a church without a sort of put out those fires. There's nothing wrong with finding information on the internet um, and verifying its, its source, verifying whether it's actually researched and true and all that. Uh, I think it's just equipping ourselves with the tools necessary uh, to deal with that, those things and deal with things that we find uncomfortable or maybe, you know, things that might be hard for us to stomach or process. And that's okay. There, I think there are definitely unsavory parts of our church history that are just kind of like hard. I mean, we've talked under the banner of heaven. I know that at some point they allude to the Mountain Meadows massacre, for example. And that's just a dark period of church history. There's not like a way to sugarcoat it, folks. 
it's it's not something where we have to try to make excuses for no, it's just people made stupid decisions, very bad decisions, and and there's people suffered because of it. But we can grow and we can change and we can move on and we can recognize that there there is error in our past at times as well, despite of course the divine and you know the inspired call of certain individuals to help bring about the restored gospel. Like you said, Soraya, no one's uh these people were not perfect and they were in many cases learning as they went. Uh, I love yep. the example of getting baptized every Sunday. It's a good example yep. of how things have changed. Uh, and you know, what else has changed? Like the word of wisdom, you think they took that seriously originally folks? Was the word of wisdom always part of a temple recommend question? No. Was, did polygamy stop immediately when they said, cut it out? No. Um, you know, that's why we had to go through two manifestos to finally weed it out, not just in, in the U.S., but even in foreign countries. And if if it weren't for people not caring about the polygamy ruling, I wouldn't be here. So thank you, colonists of Mexico who still wanted plural wives. Th- thank you because you gave me my grandma. Much appreciated. Um, anyway, well, this was a fun little tangent. Uh, I will do a quick little update here. The church did a quick update to vaccine requirements for missionaries. Now, as you might remember, of course, because we had this little pandemic thing over the past couple of years, and some people got very, very bothered when the church came out and said, you know, if you're serving abroad, you're going to need to get the COVID vaccine. And folks are like, come on, it's my choice. I can choose. Completely overlooking the fact that if you serve abroad, you've had to get a slew of vaccines. You know how many vaccines I had to have before I went to Spain on my mission? I had a bunch of vaccines. That's okay. So COVID's just one of many. That's good. Um, that mostly still stands. Obviously, things have been getting hopefully permanently better with COVID. I know cases are officially on the rise by now with another subvariant, but we're kind of seeing if it actually becomes as much of a, an issue that Omicron was back in, in the winter. Hopefully not, right? I hope that we're kind of at a place where it just sort of lingers and disappears. It's no big deal. But um, very minor updates. So what they've done here is... Uh, uh, after requiring missionaries to be vaccinated, and this is only ones who serve abroad, by the way, if you're um, an American and you're serving in America, then whoop de do. Okay. So those who are serving outside their country will still be required to get the COVID-19 vaccine, but they're only required now to get a booster if the country they are serving in requires it. Very fine difference there. I'm assuming before they asked them all to get boosted. Uh, and for some reason now we are changing our language on boosting. So I found a, uh, I looked online for a list of, cause the church didn't, didn't note this, but like which, which countries are requiring boosters of visitors, at least from tourism perspective. So I assume that would be for long-term visas as well. Mostly European, Austria, Belgium, Croa, Bulgaria, Croatia, Czech Republic, Estonia, France, Greece, Italy, also Israel, Latvia, the Netherlands, Portugal, Singapore, Spain, and Switzerland. Uh, the United Arab Emirates has been on the list, but we're not sending proselytizing missionaries there anyway. Some of that's changing. So I think that's really all it is. Like if you're going on a mission to Spain, you'll still have to get boosted. That's kind of what's going on here. But if you're going on a mission to Germany, you don't have to get a booster if you don't want one. I just think you're, you're a guest in their country. It would seem like if they ask you for something, you should be a good guest and do what they ask. I mean, I I think that's that's what we're doing basically. Yeah. They're saying, you know, yeah. So, that's the gist of it. They did note, though, this this applies to young proselytizing missionaries. Uh, senior missionaries who leave their home country are still required to be fully vaccinated and receive a booster, no matter the situation of the country in question. You have to get boosted if you're a senior. Interesting That's stuff. That's interesting. That is interesting. So, okay. Good deal. Get that shot. Remember two years ago when we all laughed when like 
all those parents congregated at Salt Lake Airport when all the missionaries were coming home because of the pandemic. And it was this giant like facepalm moment of like, guys, what are you all doing? Oh, it's just funny to reflect on the past two years. Oh my goodness. We're all infecting each other in the airport. That's what they were doing. I know. It was hilarious. <laughs> oh, anyway. Um, and I'll throw another quick one at you here. Things you may not know about church logos. From LDS Living, folks. Um, it's one of those kinds of weeks, at least for me, right? Jake Franston here has got an article. Basically, a quick history of the church's logos. The church has actually only had three official um, logo types is what we would call them because when they don't have any kind of imagery, it's just called a, it's just words that are stylized in a certain way. It's a logo type or a word mark. Um, things I did not know though is you know the old logo we used to have that had sort of the kind of I'd call it staggered in a way. You know the words kind of bounced around a little bit down left, down right. You know the Church yeah. of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the one we had up through the for a while. That uses the same font called Signet, and it's the same font Coke used. The Coke one was just italicized. And not all uppercase and bolded, but it's the same font, which is kind of interesting. Not this is for Coke specifically, like Coca Cola. I don't know if that's the exact same font, but if you have like Coke, that's the one. Um, it's just a fun history of how we came up with this uh, back when back in the days. For a long time, we had no word mark, and you can find this. They show examples of older buildings that just had like whatever sign they put on there with the church's name on it. You might remember in the '90s when the church's logo or or keep calling it a logo when the church's logo type was updated to put more emphasis on Jesus Christ, right? So that one had the church of, then Jesus Christ very prominently in the center, and then of Latter-day Saints. Uh, we're pretty used to that one. That's been the logo for a long time now until, of course, President Nelson revealed the new symbol in 2020, which still uses the same typeface. And by the way, the typeface was custom built for the church, even though it looks very close to Palatino, but it's not. Um, it was a typeface that's called Deseret, and it's actually based on the same typeface used in ancient Rome. Fancy that. So uh, in 2020, they unveiled the new symbol that has Christ on it. And I don't know if people have really noticed this, but the wordmark element of that uh, is a little bit different. The words the church of are larger than they used to be compared to of Latter-day Saints, which used to be the same size. And they have... Um, caused all of it to be perfectly, uh, not just centered, but actually spread across. So it touches the left and right sides. It's, adju- it's, it's adjusted in that sense. So it fills the whole space because um, it's supposed to symbolize the, the rock, the cornerstone upon which uh, Jesus stands, basically. So it's kind of interesting stuff. It goes into some more detail about the way the different designs we use for the picture of Jesus based off, of course, Thorvaldson's statue. Um, Fun little read if you're into this kind of stuff, graphic design and what have you. I did think it's kind of funny that a couple of times they they called it a logo, like the logo, even though the church has said many times it's not a logo, but the logo that has Jesus, like they call it a logo in the article. And then there's a, you know, read more. You may also like why it matters that the new church symbol is not a logo because President Nelson went to great lengths to say this is not a logo update or a branding update. Like this is a new symbol and a lot of people who work in that space were like, yeah, okay, it's a logo, but okay, whatever works, that's fine. Not going to hem and haw about it. It's all good. And I have nothing to add. I'm sorry. It's yeah, cool. No, no, no. No, no, that's why you're... Well, then tell, take us to yours. Do Go ahead. Go ahead, Soraya. Go ahead. Okay. So we have to talk about this. I need to find my people. If you are a listener and you are into this stuff, I need you to contact me because I need someone to talk to about it. <laughs> we're going to talk about Julie Stoffer from the real world. 
Now, I, being the age that I am, I was there when the first reality show broke ground, the first real world in New York. And it was revolutionary, right? It was this thing that no one had seen before. It was this big deal. I was obsessed. I mean, I mean we people were stopped in, being nice and started, started getting get real. real. Yeah, I mean, that was no one had done that before. So right, yeah. it was it was a big deal. And I remember, you know, going to the dorms and sitting in my apartments and watching Real World, and kind of wishing that I could be a part of it, but not really knowing how I could kind of reconcile my my faith and my beliefs with living in that kind of environment, you know, and end up getting married, and then. Real World New Orleans came out and had Julie Stoffer. And oh, I was every second of that, like so into that. It was so much fun to watch someone on this show who's getting up on Sunday and going to church, you know, while her roommates are all hung over, you know, from the night before. Um, but it was a fascinating season for so many reasons. I, it, it, there's a reason that it continues to be one of the most popular ever. I mean, the, the guys in the show, so that what's happened is Paramount Plus has gotten them back together. It's been 20 years, 22 years. Yes. And I'm watching that. I subscribed oh, to Paramount so you've Plus seen that. specifically okay. to watch the reunion. Like I'm not <laughs> obsessed no, with it. No, you did not. <laughs> I did. And I'm so excited to see it. And, you know, because this is my, there are a few years younger than me, but this is kind of my age rate group, right? And so it's just funny to watch these people come back. And I, I am shocked at how badly Julie is handling all of this. And I, I would think with her level of media savvy, I'm like, did you not talk to a publicist before you went on the show? Isn't there someone who guided you on what to do? She is just, uh, for those who don't watch, what had happened was she was on the show, the little sweet Mormon girl, you know, that people kind of took under their wings. She made really good friends, um, particularly with one girl who's Filipino and black and um, I, the gay guy who was the big don't ask, don't tell. He's become like an icon kind of since then to the point that they get recognized now. Like they go out in the show and they're getting recognized. And, you know, he met Beyonce and Beyonce like, I know who you are. And he's like, I know who you are. You know, they were they were big deals. They were really popular in the media. I mean, we have such a saturation now of reality shows. I don't think it's quite the same thing. But what ended up happening after the show is they become best friends. You know, the, the girl who, the, the woman of color, her name is Melissa. Her and Julie become the bestest of friends and they're gonna go live together in Los Angeles. Well. Back then, before Instagram, before you could make money off your fame, the way you did it was college speaking tours. And, you know, you want to get hired to you make money that way. And so what Julie did was she sabotaged Danny and Melissa and sent nasty letters about them. Like, Melissa won't sign autographs. She won't talk to people, but I will. You know, Danny is, I mean, it was about him being gay. I don't know exactly what she said, but it was really hurtful to him. He was very offended by what she'd said. And so I thought, I try to put myself in Julie's shoes. If I'm coming back 22 years, they have not spoken to her since. I mean, they were both, and I thought, and obviously this happened. It happened to more than one person. She, it's so calculated. Everything she's doing is so calculated, but it's calculated, but stupid. Like she just makes the dumbest decisions. And instead of owning this, well, someone on my team must have done it. It's not my fault. You know, I'm sorry if you were hurt. And they're like, no, 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 not sorry if we were hurt. Sorry, we were hurt. Like she just, I don't know. She's very... Like, you know, she's left the church. She left the church a while ago. But she's such like the typical Utah County stay-at-home mom. Like, it's almost kind of funny. She she wears nothing but exercise gear the whole time she's on the show. Like, she's constantly in workout clothes. Hey, um, I'm, I'm in running pants right now. Yeah, I mean, her whole, you know, it's just hilarious. Like, she's, and so it, they go out to a club and she gets blindingly drunk. I mean, so drunk that the bouncers come to the other cast members and they're like, you have to leave. Like she's out of control. 
And maybe this is the difference if you didn't ever drink in your 20s or something. I don't know. If you start suddenly doing it in your 40s, you, it really messes you up. But to the point that one of the guys is trying to carry her out because she's so belligerent and so awful that, you know, they're going to call the police and ends up falling out of the car because she's so drunk. And I'm just like, this is this is the freedom you were looking for. Like, this is so much better. You know, Well, it's also probably the storyline the producers are looking for. Oh, I'm sure they are. And they're so excited about her leaving the church. But I just, you can just see her before she talks to someone and you can see her mind going and how is she going to spin this and how is she going to tie? She's standing outside someone's room and you can see from the expression on her face and it's just, she's so bad at all of it. I don't understand not having any kind of self-awareness in this day and age to not be, I mean, she's on the show making these racist and homophobic remarks, you know, just call it what it is. So I, I find her very interesting. I'm, I'm interested that, you know, using her faith to become so famous and turning her back on it so completely and just kind of making a total fool of herself. Someone indicated that they think she might leave the show early. and I would not be surprised. I mean, she is just screwing this up left and right. And everybody else is just so excited to see each other. You know, like it really is this, hey, it's been 22 years. I'm so happy to see you. And she's just, I don't know. She was, she was the star of the show. It was what MTV wanted in the first place. You know, the young ingenue, unsophisticated girl goes to the big city for the first time. It has her worldviews challenge. I mean, you can see that in earlier real world. So there's always a character like that, right? Yeah. So she was that one. So she was the star of the show and she is making herself the star of the show right now. But well, I don't think she's doing herself any favors. Uh, how's the, uh, since it's on streaming, how's, how is it like in terms of uh, content, like profanity and stuff like that? Is it? I think there open, is some. Oh, and open Julie, season compared yeah, to the old and Julie days? has got a mouth on her. And I'm like, yes, you can show us that you're so cool now that you can use F-bombs too. It's, it definitely exists. So if you're, if you're aware of that kind of thing, just to be aware of that. Um, I mean, I, I find it fascinating because I was so obsessed with it at the time, you know, and, and to yeah. watch these people 22, like Danny, the gay guy that he's basically like, in hiding in Vermont, you know, he works from home because he says, I have complex PTSD from what we went through because every moment was watched. And not only that, but he was dating someone under the don't ask, don't tell rules of Clinton. And he said, we couldn't be seen in public together because he would have lost his job and always Mm. feeling like you're being watched and you can't be yourself. And, you know, so it's interesting to see kind of how this fame you know, and one of the girls in the show went on to marry the actor Scott Wolf. You know, he starred in Party of Five. He plays the dad on Nancy Drew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, big celebrity, right? And she seems to handle it really well. And she's very happy. They've been married for a couple of decades. They've got three kids, you know. So I don't know. I, I, I'm finding it fascinating. And like I said, I so want to talk to someone about this. And nobody else is watching it. And I'm very disappointed you know, I want to find someone who's who's watching this and can talk to me about it. But do do you want to divulge your email or any way for people to contact you if you oh, need yeah, a friend? Oh yeah, you can go to my website. Yeah, just Soraya at SorayaWilson.com. You can there email you me and say I'm a fan. Let's talk about Julie because I'm up for it. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm never going to watch this, but I'm glad no. you're having a good time with it. I'm that. having a great time. I'm glad. Um, uh, speaking of other women whose name starts with J, so we had a commencement at BYU the other week. And this has kind of made some interesting rounds here. A BYU student named Jillian Orr, uh, uh, as she approached the podium to accept her diploma for a job well done graduating, uh, opened up her robes like a flasher and inside had knitted in a rainbow. And she was using that opportunity to announce, in her case, her bisexuality. Um, But she had a lot of her reasons, basically said that she realized kind of halfway through her BYU experience what her sexual orientation was different than she had supposed in the past. 
and uh, and struggled a lot through her time at BYU, um, kind of keeping that to herself, and she was scared about it, and so she decided to use that moment to kind of be proud of who she is. She's received plaudits from many for doing so. And she's also received, of course, derision from others who were saying, you know, why are you making this about you and, and the same stuff you would kind of expect. All in all, I mean, I think this is an interesting moment. You could make the, you could definitely make the argument of like, why are you singling yourself out in commencement? Like, what about the people who came before and after you? Yeah. Are they also not special? Right. Um, you're having this great moment, but it does speak, of course, to the fact that LGBTQ voices at BYU are do still find themselves in a difficult place, you know, despite saying you can be gay as long as you keep the honor code and all that stuff. I think it's you're still in an unenviable position uh, at uh, at BYU in that case. And I imagine it feels awkward for many. I mean, for anybody, whatever it is, whether you're bisexual, whether you're completely homosexual, um, whatever it might be, that's that's not not easy. And so many have praised her for her courage and what she's done. Um, one funny little wrinkle that's shown up since then in the few days is that some people have said that it turns out she was employed at the Eva Carlson Academy, which I don't know if you're familiar with this place, Soraya. Mm-hmm. No. I had to do a little bit of learning on my end. But the Eva Carlson Academy works in the TTI industry, which or which I believe is the teen trauma industry is what TTI is. I think that's what it is. It, basically, it's one of these academies that like takes troubled teens and tries to kind of like tough love it out of them, apparently. Troubled teen industry. That's what I mean. Troubled teen wow. industry. Um, ECA apparently is known by many to be a network of, this is a tweet, but it describes it as an abusive residential and wilderness-based program for troubled teens using things like outdated therapies like attack therapy, um, (laughs) legal kidnapping, unethical restraint and seclusion. Anyway, apparently Jillian worked there for a season and she's, they dug up old pictures of her like doing things like teaching people how to restrain people and talks about her own experience with this Jillian girl, um, being brutal to her at one of these academies. A lot of hearsay, a lot of back and forth. Totally understand all this kind of stuff. Uh, I just find it interesting that, um, if any of this is true, you've got someone who's coming out courageously saying, hey, this is who I am for, with my sexual orientation. Also, by the way, I used to work at a place that could be what some would interpret as abusive to kids who have those sexual orientations. Yeah. So that could be interesting, too. But I don't know. Like, I don't want I'm not by strict rumors. This, these are people's accounts. Yeah. I haven't seen any official research beyond that stage, like reporters going in and trying to verify it and all this. But at the same time, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot that's already shared that seems to show some kind of substantiated somehow. Yeah. It, it's yeah. <laughs> I'm what sorry. do you think I, about all of this? I, I don't know. I I'm with you. I think I see both sides. I can, I can see why she would feel she needed to do it. And I can see why people would feel like, well, it detracts and you know, but I don't know, I guess I, I was just reading this study that said 40% of Gen Z identify as being LGBTQ plus. And whether that's they actually are or it's I'm going to be cool by being, I don't know. Um, you know, generally we say in the population, it's about 10%, right? So I don't know. But I'm like, if that's the case, you know, those 300 kids in primary, you're talking about a large percentage of them, you know, 120 of them who would consider themselves to be this, you know, on the LGBTQ plus spectrum. So I, I think it's something the church is, I think there's, 
probably a reckoning coming. I can't, I don't know. I'm speculating um, how things might change. I don't know. But we have to be better about letting people in the boat. We have to be better about yeah. making things more inclusive and more loving. And I, I feel like that's one of those things that, you know, for hetero people for so many years, like, you know, I'm trying to explain to my kids. I'm like, you understand when I was in high school, nobody was out, you know, they would have been bullied to death. You know, like it was just not something that was discussed. It wasn't on TV. It wasn't, you know, you made in, fun of, you made fun yeah. of it. I remember, I remember yeah. being in high school, like it was totally normal to say that's so gay. Right. You know, like a pejorative. That was a completely acceptable thing to say as part yeah. of our lexicon. I mean, and I think you expect, you know, your grandparents' generation, like my mom and dad, like, oh, yeah, they're really old. And I think my kids look at me and go, well, you guys, you know, you're not that old. Well, yeah, but this isn't the world that we grew up in. And it's going to take some some shifts for us to understand and be more compassionate. But I, I, I just go back to the gospel and the gospel is to love everyone and love them where they are and bring them to Christ. And we'll let, you know. We get everybody in the boat and he decides who goes where, you know, um, yeah. it's our job just to bring him in. And, and I do feel like we need to be more inclusive and loving in that, in that particular area. And in many ways, it's all we, it's all we can do, you know, um, yeah. like, like what other, what acts are we going to grind? That's going to make the situation better. Just love people and listen to them. It's not going to be perfect. You're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to make everything better immediately. And it's not going to make it always easier to find a place for them in the church sometimes, but just love them instead of not loving them or singling them out. And, and on that note, I'm curious, I don't know if, if, if there will be any kind of uh, repercussions for uh, what Majillion has done. You know, will she get disciplined? I mean, she's just graduated. She's basically off the off the roster. I don't think they do something crazy like take her diploma away or anything like that. Um, but there are some who fear, like, what will there be? Will there be repercussions for doing such a thing, especially after B after you know BYU is trying to focus more on you know the muskets and all that stuff that yeah. Elder Holland suggested, right? So yeah, um, remains to be seen. All right, I've got one more. I'm going to go through, then you can hit yours uh, real quick. Growth of the church, people. One thing that LDS Living has picked up on in recent years is the fact that the blog Growth of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, run for many, 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 many years by Matt Martinick, uh, exists. And now they like to use its content to put up articles on uh, LDS Living. So good for them. Basically, the headline is, these countries are the fastest growing in the church as measured by new congregations. Quick caveat, though, this measures a jump from 2019 to 2021 because the church opted not to release country-by-country country data for 2020 uh, because of the pandemic, which we've talked about before on the show. Like release, I say release it anyway, but the, the headline would be the fact that things slowed to nothing in 2020 and people would say, oh, look, the church is collapsing, right? So that's probably why they didn't do it, even if I think for the sake of data fidelity, they should, even if you can put a nice little asterisk that says, yeah, there was a pandemic. Stuff slowed down. It happens. Um, pretty much all of the action is in Africa, almost all of it. So the countries with the largest percentage increase in total number of wards or branches Tanzania has a 62.5% increase, Malawi, Zambia, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Mozambique, Kiribati, Liberia, Sierra Leone, Zimbabwe, Papua New Guinea. So you have eight in Africa and then one in uh, Australasia, which is Papua New Guinea, and then Kiribati, which is like, what's that, Melanesia, Micronesia officially. Um, that's where the action's happening. That's the biggest growth in number of populations. I, I haven't gone to the blog. Congregations. Is this, is this like adjusted for numbers because i mean if you have a one person ward and it goes to two people you know that's a 50 you know 100 percent increase 
is it you know are they adjusting for that so so that's the funny thing for some reason lds living does not go into the actual numbers right i don't know why um if you want to talk about hard numbers of increases, that's actually the way Matt Martinick wrote it originally when he published this on April 24th. He wrote out um, the, the number of congregation increase or decrease and then the percentage related to it. So for let's find where was Tanzania on here. So Tanzania, which has a 62.5% increase, right? The, the biggest one in the church. Yeah. That's five more congregations. Yeah. It's kind of getting at what you were saying. Yeah. Whereas... The United States had 217 new congregations, but that's a 1.5% increase. Um, some are more notable, though, like 44 new congregations in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and that's still a 21% increase based on that. Um, but like you said, yeah, some are kind of funny because it's like four more congregations is a 31% increase in this country. Or like Malawi yeah. with 50% added four congregations with 50%. That's great. That means they went oh, from yeah. eight to 12. Terrific. But um, and also, of course, they did not note the ones that have de- declined. Uh, Matt Martinick's straight shooter. He just reports on what the numbers are and what's happening, and that's that. And isn't afraid to comment on why it might be. But uh, Japan lost ten congregations, almost a four percent decrease. Taiwan lost ten, which is a ten percent decrease. Russia lost seven. Um, I guess the biggest one on there is Taiwan in terms of percentage. Then Portugal and Russia are kind of up there too. Oh no, sorry, Armenia. Oh, Armenia. We've talked about Armenia before on this show. I know you don't listen all the time, but um, Armenia lost six units, which doesn't seem very much, but that's a 55% decrease. Armenia had a stake not too long ago, and then they disorganized the stake. And it's very sad to see this slide that is continuing in Armenia in terms of the church. It's bizarre. And I know a lot of people's submissions in Armenia uh, like 20 years ago or so, and I think things were really going up. I don't even hear about people serving missions there as much as I used to either. So. But I also am not like of the age when people are going on missions around me, right? And I'm yeah. doing that all the time. So good stuff to know there, folks. Things are happening in Africa. Not a big surprise to anyone. A lot happening in Africa right now. Yeah. And I think that's probably why, I, I don't know if I talked to you about it or someone else, probably not you, but the inclusion of instruments in the Bishop's Handbook mm, yeah. that went from just the piano, right? Or the you know flute or violin or whatever to letting it be the bishop's discretion. And I don't remember where I even read this, but they were talking about that one of the reasons they think they did, they made that change was because for the African saints, the drums are so important for their worship service and that they felt like we have our European Sunday sacrament, but then we have the real meeting on Wednesday where we play the drums and dance. Yeah. Wasn't and you so, and I who were, who were I talking about this? A, yeah, it must have been. I know I've talked it about it. It must have been because I, no, I wrote a paper on this in grad school. Um, yeah. I was, I, I forgot my entire thesis. I would, no, I was, uh, I wrote a, gra- a paper on like the exporting of like American values abroad as part yeah. of religious expansion, more or less. And kind of like, where's that line? Like, what is the church? And then what is just American culture? Yeah. Um, and it was kind of along uh, about that. They used to allow them. And this is, it's, I hate, I'm not, I hate being one of those people who says like just Africa, like it's a country. It's yeah. Not. But in many African nations, they, the authorities, the general authorities would allow them, like you said, on the, on weeknights to kind of get together and do something more culturally significant. Um, but Sundays were kind of the typical Sunday. I am curious how that's going to change now with the updated handbook and what that yeah. might mean. I mean yeah. Them. There was, there was speculation that that was part of the reason why was to allow people who, you know, in their culture, fill the spirit through different instruments to be able to have access to those during sacrament. 
So I, I, I'm wondering how many other changes we're going to have like that going forward as the church changes and grows in areas yeah. like that, you know, that we have to be more inclusive and, and bring people in to let them feel the spirit the way they feel the spirit. Yeah. Well, now I've got to find my, my paper I want to write. Now I don't remember what I wrote, but I got to find out. Um, yeah. I'm curious about that too. I'm just hoping we get to the house band. You know, I want like the, I want I want to rock for Jesus pretty hard. I'm hoping somebody will get to that. It may happen. That'd be fun. All right, what's our last one here? I'm going to do the Carolyn Pearson. Yeah, that's a a great little bit right there. That's that's a sweet little story. That's feel good, yeah. Carolyn Pearson is, I mean, someone I kind of grew up with. You know, she was very outspoken in a time when a lot of LDS women were not outspoken. And, you know, her story being that her husband was gay and and came out to her years later and, you know, how that kind of fell apart. And he died from AIDS in 1984. and, And she loved him and took care of him till the end. Um, but it gave her a different perspective and, and she's known for being a poet and mm-hmm. with poetry, you know, I'm a writer. I do not write poetry. That is a totally different skill set, you know, and my poetry is just so affected and stupid sounding and, and someone like Carolyn Pearson writes just beautiful moving poetry. And she's, you know, known for that. And so she shared stories recently about that. She was friends with um, Orrin Hatch and Senator Harry Reid before their deaths and kind of shared stories about how she they called her and told her Merry Christmas. And uh, she touched their hearts. They loved her poetry so much that it, it opened their minds and it changed their perspective and it made them consider things that they hadn't considered. Um, I mean, I think Orrin Hatch said, it's right here. It says, it said, Carolyn, I just have to tell you what a great contribution the book is. I've worked closely with gay people and I know they are wonderful members of society. You've done us all a great service by sharing that story. And so she was able to really touch people's lives and met with them in, you know, DC. I guess that Henry Reed's daughter got married and they asked her to do a poetry reading and she's sitting in the front row with the Reed family, oh. you know, um, just a very sweet, very sweet thing in her talking about them and that she, that she loved them and considered them friends. Um, and it's just not, not a connection that I would have expected, you know, her sharing that I'm like, wow, really, really? Because she just, it seems just so different. Like their spheres of influence are just so different. But to know that she had that kind of effect and that her art, you know, affected these, these famous LDS politicians, which I think is just really cool. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's a weird thing too, you know, Harry Reid and Orrin Hatch, opposite sides of the political spectrum and both passing away, uh, you know, within pretty, I forgot how it was this year that Harry Reid died as well. I mean, these are a couple months apart that this happened. Uh, Interesting man. I love the stories of Warren Hatch and how uh, I love the way she says how he went to um, he went to Desert Book because he had some influence, right? Yeah, it <laughs> talked about that because she, she. Oh, where was the prayer? She wrote a uh, da, 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 da. one of her poems had a feminist twist. Desert Book decided they, they weren't going to carry it, and yeah, or Warren Hatch is like that's not okay. I'm going to go talk to them, you know. But it, nothing happened with it. But it's fun to see personal anecdotes about people who often just get covered in the political press and what we think of them in terms of policy and forgetting that a guy like Orrin Hatch could be up there saying like, no, this kind of like poetry, this, this, these sorts of things matter and we should be embracing them as a faith community and not saying no. And of course he was disappointed. It didn't go anywhere. They both worked, you know, Harry Reid and then Orrin Hatch both worked on the behalf of the church quite a bit. Harry Reid famously did tons of stuff behind the scenes uh, on behalf of the church while he was in office. So yeah, good little anecdotes here. I appreciate those. They were great. 
We put those on our Facebook page. You can go find them at Facebook. You can find everything you want pertaining to the show on social media, on Twitter, at thisweekinmormons.com. You can join us on Patreon. Three bucks a month supports the show and keeps us doing this largely without ads or interruptions or anything along those lines. You just get to enjoy a show. How nice is that, folks? I'm not doing a five-minute ad break. Nothing like that. Just talking to you. No, so good times like that. I hope you will all buy uh, the Soraya's new book that is out that she forgot exists. Yeah, and, it's called um, Cinder Nanny. So, uh, wow, uh, is it like yeah. Cinderella or yes. or okay? It a, or she's a Cinderella thing, but yeah, she's a nanny and it's got a Cinderella thing, so it's called Cinder Nanny. I'm up for. I like titles that just tell you what the book is. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's no very clever. Cryptic. So you don't need to be cryptic, like yeah, like when I was in, I was in a you know a band years ago and we prided ourselves on obscure song titles that had nothing to do with the song. Yep. So don't be that person. Don't I'm be a person, person who writes a song called "This Is for You, Chad," and the the lyrical content has nothing to nothing of that it's just like an inside joke as bandmates so good on you you're you're much more seo friendly so good for yes. you <laughs> that's good uh we look forward to seeing your new book coming out as well and above all else let's not stay apart so long sarai it's been nice to have you back on yeah definitely anytime i'd love to come back good deal well please visit her sariwilson.com please visit us online listen to the show write reviews do all that good stuff folks and until then i've been jeff that was Soraya. And uh, we'll check in again and see how those McMansions are going around the temples. And until that time, hope you have a great week. This Week of Mormons is over. Bye-bye.